Thanks for listening to the Calvary Baptist Church Podcast. For more information, check us out at cbctaylorville.com. Join us now as our guest speaker delivers this week's message. I am really excited to be here. Uh, Just so some of you already know me, but just so we get acquainted, some of you don't know me. My name is Chad Zook. And my wife and I and, and our kids, who now we're empty nesters, we're celebrating empty nesters, and yet we're also grieving being empty nesters. At the same time, we're really conflicted. Pray for us. Uh, it's a really hard thing right now that we're going through. But So we are excited to be here, and, and our kids aren't here because they're off doing their thing. But we've actually been connected with Calvary now for 20 years, and it was really weird. I started doing math, and I'm not really good at math, but I I took my shoes off and stuff. I figured it out, and it was 20 years that we've been connected with Calvary, and we've come back, and we we just want to say it's just really an honor to be here on the 75th anniversary of this church. Give it up for you. It's amazing. 75 years of gospel faithfulness in Christian County. That is amazing. And many of you have served for years and years and years, and you've contributed just, just blood, sweat, and tears to make the church what it is and to bring people to Christ. So from my heart to yours, I just want to say kudos to you. That is well done, brothers and sisters in Christ. And for us, we've been uh, gone now for several years. Again, our journey at Calvary began 20 years ago, but we left in 2005. And prior to 2005, some of you know this, I used to work on airplanes and you can decide if I'm a better speaker or not of working on airplanes at the end, but I didn't think I was really good at working on airplanes. Uh, I really wasn't, and I should have known that because I had some bad days, and I think that those bad days when I was working on airplanes actually led me to not work on airplanes anymore. Now, in hindsight, who in here has ever had a bad day at work? Anyone? A bad day at work. That's pretty much everybody who works, right? We've all had those. I had a a really bad day at work, and I, I worked at ADM in their aviation department, I know it sounds cool, but it really wasn't that cool. Uh, you come home smelling like jet fuel, like every other you know, job working on airplanes. But I, I, there was one particular day where I was tasked to go in early, and I had to manage this, this early flight, and I was the only mechanic that was there, and which meant I had to move the airplanes around and push them out of the hangar and basically line them up and fuel them for them to go. And Because they don't sit with fuel in them, you just fuel them up right before they go. Well, I was the only one there, and it's early morning. I don't think I'd had any coffee or certainly didn't have enough coffee. So I'm, I'm pushing a multi-million dollar corporate jet, just so we understand the severity I'm about to say here. A multi-million dollar jet, and I'm trying to tow it or to push it uh, with the tow tractor outside of the hangar, but the wingtip hangs up and smashes into the ice machine. Somebody say, oh, no. Um, yeah, that was a bad day, and I'm the only one there, and I've got pilots showing up, and I've got passengers showing up, and surprise, there's your airplane, you know, it's not in good shape, and, and that was a, I don't even know how much it cost. I, I, I do know this, that it cost over $10,000, maybe $15,000, and that was a bad day at work, but it was even worse because then they sent me to the service center to manage the airplane the whole time it was being fixed. So every time somebody asked the question, what happened to the airplane, yours truly got to to relive that moment over and over and over. So it was not only a bad day at work, it was a lot of bad days at work, and it was all my fault. Ultimately, I think that that's one of the things that God would use to loosen the soil, so to speak, and to take us and uproot us from 
here and ultimately from working on airplanes and then to call us into vocational ministry. And we've had the opportunity now of of being at a church called Dublin Bible Church in Dublin, Georgia for 11 years. And God's done amazing things and people have come to Christ and families been brought back together. Just a, a lot of amazing things that have happened there just like here. But you know, it all... Uh, that really started for me with, with some bad days at work and eventually I would get laid off and I thought that that was like a big crisis moment in my life but yet God used that crisis moment in my life to turn things upside down for me to be the man that I am today and to be standing in front of you. I, I had the opportunity to, my early discipleship was all in this church. I actually preached my first message in this church and if you heard it, I apologize. I didn't get a chance to say, I didn't get a chance to say I'm sorry. But, uh, but it was bad. I know it was bad. I, 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 people even realized and people knew that it was going to be bad because there was, I'm not, I'm not even kidding, it was a friend of ours actually brought a pillow and blanket up in the front row. They never sat in the front row, but they did when I preached that message on a Sunday night right there. And I was like, seriously, you don't know how, kind of, how much pressure we're on automatically. But hey, they were ready for a nap, so I guess that's good too. Um, so... Our, our journey into ministry, it began with several kind of bad days. And I want you to know the person in the Bible we're going to look at today is his, his job was so unique that if he had a bad day, it literally meant that he died. And this is how the journey of Nehemiah begins. I just invite you to go into your Bible, your phone, your tablet, whatever you have, to go into Nehemiah. We're actually going to be in Nehemiah 2. And as we kind of unpack what it looks like for Nehemiah, the reason why uh, for him a bad day would mean death is this. He was a a cupbearer to the king, and because we have no reference point of this, a cupbearer to the king, and the king was Artaxerxes. He was was a Persian king. But the interesting thing about his job is he he would be on like the king's inner court, and every time that the food would be served to the king or drink to be served to the king, he would taste it first. So if you have like germ issues, I guess you just get over it really quick, I guess. I have germ issues. I don't eat after people. I don't drink after people. It's just weird to me. I don't know. I'm not judging you. It's just weird. And you might be, never mind. I, I went too far. So Nehemiah was the type of guy to where he was the cupbearer to the king. So again, a good day was he tastes the food and the king eats the food and it's great. The bad day means he goes home in a box. That was kind of his deal. But he had received a burden. And if I'm honest, I'm going to give you three different things from the passage today. I'm going to give you three different things directly from this passage that we see in Nehemiah's life, but it begins with the burden. And I just want to just kind of put it all up front. If you're not faithfully serving Jesus Christ, I want you to feel the burden of not being one with God. I want you to feel that. I want you to feel that not because, not because I, I want anything ill of you. I don't. I love you. But because I want more for you. Nehemiah, was, he received this burden as he's the cupbearer to the king, but he receives this burdening message about the city of Jerusalem, a city that he wasn't even near, but he identified with those people because those were his people. Do you see what I'm saying? They were his people. So he receives this message that the walls around Jerusalem are down and the gates have been burned. And then there's all sorts of of apathy and all sorts of complacency with the people. So he receives this message and he takes this message to heart. He takes this message to heart so much so that then he goes to the king and he asks the king for permission for him to be relieved of his job to go back to Jerusalem so he could actually start solving some of the problems 
with his leadership. But he doesn't just begin there. Instead, before he goes to talk to the king, he, he does what every good Christian should do before they make a commitment to start doing something for God. He prayed and he fasted. And God gave favor with Nehemiah before the pagan king, and the pagan king allowed him to go to Jerusalem. And I know this is going to be hard to believe because, you know, we, we have a hard time thinking politicians would do this. He, being a politician, actually paid for Nehemiah to go himself. I know, I know. It's groundbreaking. But he goes now with permission of the king, and he's been given all the supplies that he needs, that, are, that he believes he needs, to go do the work that's at hand but he doesn't do all the work himself. That's an important piece. The year is 444 BC. Some of you know the Bible really well, and you know that there's a a time span of approximately 400 years that divides the Old Testament and New Testament. And the 400 years in between Old Testament and New Testament is known as intertestamental period. Nehemiah is bumping right up against, he's right at the close of the Old Testament period, his writing is anyway, in 444 B.C., and it's the second second to last writing in the Old Testament, just so you understand the backdrop of what's happening. So after Nehemiah, just paint this picture, he gets this, this burden about the city because he identifies with these people, and he's so compelled not to send somebody else, but he's so compelled for himself to go. But in his, in his life story, you see this incredible truth. And I know that, that you as a church, you've had several messages on prayer, so I know what I'm about to say is going to track with what you've heard already. But the first thing I want us to start with before we get into the passage is this, because this, this is what he does, is before doing a great work for God, we need to spend time with God. Before we go out and we just think we're going to venture out and just do all these amazing things for God, We need to spend time with God. We need to be locked in what it is that God has for us to do, us uniquely. Not just us as a body, but us us uniquely. Because God has a plan and a purpose for your life as an individual. He, He doesn't just see you in the masses. He sees you as an individual. And he sees you and he knows and he created you wonderfully. Everything about you is remarkable to God. With Nehemiah, before he does this great work for God, he spends time with God, which is very wise for us to do. For us to kind of see and and just kind of paint this picture as we lean into the Scripture, the first thing that I think that I would offer up to you from the Scripture and what Nehemiah is doing is Nehemiah has courage to stand. If you and I are going to succeed as the people of God, in our workplaces, in our families, if we're going to see our neighbors come to Christ, if we're going to see this this church in another 75 years to continue to be the city on a hill, the light in the darkness, a beacon of hope in Christian County and beyond, we too are going to have to have courage to stand, is what we see with Nehemiah. Now let's lean into the passage. Nehemiah Chapter 2, verse 11, says this, I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I sent, I sent out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate 
through the jackal gate and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on towards the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. Yet, as yet, I had said nothing to the Jews or to the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Notice this. Stop here just momentarily before we get into verse 17. At the end of verse 16, he's pointing to what he thinks it's going to take for the work to, co- to be accomplished, for the walls to be restored, for the gates to be hung, and for the doors to be hung. And it's not, he's, he's not the answer. He may be the key leader that God is using to, to go there to stir the people up, but what is the expectation? Look at the end of verse 16. And he says, and any others who would be doing the, what's the next word? Work. Who would be doing the work? He knew his place, and he was going to invite people into their place. Verse 17, then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me, and what the king had said to me. They replied, Let us start rebuilding, so they began this good work. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem, the Arab, heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. So just in reading that passage, it's just steeped in tension. And it's that tension that we see Nehemiah with, with his courage to stand. A courage to stand for a people that he identified with simply because he had heard this message. And now as he's, he's going, at Jeru- going to Jerusalem and, and going by at night, by the way, is what it said. Because courage also needs common sense. Courage also needs common sense. He's going at night because he knows if he starts sharing the vision about the work that God would want them to do, if he starts sharing it too early, the naysayers are going to just jump all over him. We'll get to that in a minute. So instead, he goes out by night, and he goes around, and he he inspects the walls. And what he's doing is he's validating what he's heard prior to this. And he does it for three days. So he surveys, he inspects, he, he does everything that he should. And everything that he had heard is actually true, and he sees it with his eyes. What's kind of disappointing to me in this passage and understanding Nehemiah is not what Nehemiah does. It's why Nehemiah has to go there in the first place. Because Nehemiah is actually the third in a line of exile groups who've gone out of captivity and back to Jerusalem. The first individual was a gentleman by the name of Zerubbabel. The second one was more of a spiritual leader by the name of Ezra. And Ezra and Nehemiah in the Hebrew literature are actually seen as one passage. So now Nehemiah is actually the third wave of exiles who are going to Jerusalem. And I scratch my head and I'm burdened with this. And I think, why, why was the city and the place that it was in? Because there should have been something happening prior to that. 
Instead of Nehemiah hearing that the city was in shambles, what he should have heard was the city is flourishing. The people are well. That Ezra brought these spiritual reforms and things are going amazingly well. But that's not the message that he heard. Instead, what he'd heard about the city was true. There are some peculiar things about the gates that are mentioned here. These gates you can still see today. As a matter of fact, I want to share with you a brief picture. This picture is from very far off. So this picture is, is of Jerusalem. The, in the, in right in about the middle of it, you see a long wall. And that's the same wall that's being mentioned here with Nehemiah. The vantage point, and I've had the opportunity of seeing this twice many years ago. But the vantage point would be from the, the Mount of Olives looking to the old city of Jerusalem. So this is the wall that Nehemiah is talking about. And again, it's so far away that you can't see a lot of it. But I will draw two things to your attention. If you can see where the wall is and you can, you can trace the wall onto the left side of the screen, there's, there's a 90-degree turn in the wall. At that point in the wall is where the valley gate is and the dung gate. So the same gates that were mentioned here in Nehemiah, you can literally see these. And, and what is another little interesting fact here, and then I'll move on, is this would have been a similar vantage point that Jesus would have had when he was praying in the garden. Because the garden of Gethsemane is in the Mount of Olives. So whether it was this vantage point or it was, it was to the right, this would have been a similar vantage point. This is the place that, that Nehemiah is, is now going out at night and he's going through and looking at these walls to see what shape they're in. And he's looking at the doors and he's looking at, at the gates. Another little interesting piece of this is where the, you see like little sprouts of trees in the picture. That's the Kidron Valley. And if you were to follow the Kidron Valley to the left, the Hinnom Valley is what's mentioned in this passage. The Hinnom Valley is, it connects again at a 90 degree angle about where the wall is in that 90 degree angle, about the middle of the screen. So this isn't just some ancient literature that has no place in history for us to understand, you literally can go there and see with your eyes something similar to what Nehemiah had seen. I love when, when things in real life, they just validate what the Bible already shows us and already tells us. Y'all like that too? It makes me want to get into God's Word more to validate what it is that, that God is saying and, and what it means to me as an individual so not only do we see that, that there's a courage to stand, but the second takeaway, and I draw this from verses 17 and 18, is this, that he has conviction to speak. He has conviction to speak. Draw your attention to verse 17 and 18. This is what that passage says. Then I said to them, this is Nehemiah in the first person. He says, then I, Nehemiah said to them, you see the trouble that we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. Remarkably, what Nehemiah says is like, this isn't just a Nehemiah thing, this is a God thing. That I'm here because God sent me here. That I'm here and I'm just, just and Nehemiah is saying that the gracious hand of God is upon me and he's upon you and God wants to do something in our midst. But it takes conver- excuse me, it takes conviction to speak. Not only does it take courage, 
but it takes conviction to speak. We could go a bunch of different ways here, and I don't want to, but I, I will just kind of summarize what's going on in my world, in your world with this. Followers of Jesus need to have conviction to speak. Amen? And that, that's not, I'm not saying that for any sort of political reason. I'm just saying that if there's a time that the light of Christ needs to shine, it's right now. We need to validate to the lost world that the church matters, that the gospel matters, and that Jesus is alive. And it takes conviction to speak this truth. We see this with Nehemiah. He's the one who gets up and he says, you see the trouble we're in. Notice what he does. He's, he is actually drawing them to something that they should have seen all along. He's like, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins. In other words, this is your city. These are your people. I'm only here for a short time with Nehemiah. He's only there for a short time. And he says, let's let's rebuild this wall together so that we will no longer be in disgrace. And then he reminds them about the gracious hand of God that's upon him. It made me think about this, and those of us who are in Christ, we are to be witnesses of the gospel message, aren't we? We're to be witnesses. We're supposed to be telling people about the greatness and glory of God and and the saving work of the gospel and the finished work of the cross and the glorious resurrection and the victorious life that's offered for everyone who repents of their sin and acknowledges that Jesus Christ is Lord and asks Him to be Savior. For their hearts to be set on fire by the Holy Spirit of God. The same movement of God uh, that's talked about in Acts 1.8. And that passage says this. It says, but you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. And to the ends of the earth. And because this word is true, we are living in fulfillment of it. This word is true. and, And to the ends of the earth, we are living in the ends of the earth. Their minds could not fathom back then during New Testament times when the Holy Spirit of God would descend upon those people when they're in the upper room and it would descend upon them as tongues of fire and that they would be released with the gospel message in the Holy Spirit. They would never in their mind be able to fathom what this could possibly look like, but they knew that their message wasn't supposed to stop in Jerusalem or Judea or Samaria, but it was to go to the ends of the earth. We are the ends of the earth. Their availability gave us the ability to worship God. They were available to God, and they surrendered to God, and they were empowered by God, and that allows us here in Taylorville, Illinois, to worship God because their availability unlocked our ability. One is connected with the other. They were witnesses. Let let me just ask you this. I know this is a sore subject for some people. Who in here has ever served served on jury duty? Anyone? Anyone? Was that a pleasurable experience for you? Did did you like it? Was it okay? Um, I, I served on jury duty, and it was really funny for me when I started jury duty because they start with a large group of people, and people come with a large list of excuses not to be on jury duty. It's amazing. Like, that's just, and I'm not judging them. Like, they have, they're busy. They're, you know, doing their thing. But I didn't want to do that. I wanted to kind of go through, and I thought it was kind of my, you know, my civil duty to be in jury duty. And it was, it was 
for me, I wasn't on a traveler's jury, so it wasn't just one particular case. It was grand jury, so it was all, it was the way it works there. I don't know how it works here, but it was literally for a whole, uh, like three or four months. So I had to go back and forth, back and back and back. And, and of course, they pay you nothing, so like little to nothing. So you just go there for cakes and grins. Uh, don't be lured in with the money because it's not there. It's not coming. But... But what's neat is being a part of that process is, is to kind of see the inner workings of the justice system. And I've watched just enough court TV and enough of those things. I'm like, man, I want to mix it up a little bit. And, of course, there's a lot of tragic stories. And you hear stories about people who are, um, you know, crimes have happened to them. But one of the things that, that I, re- I remember specifically is I remember some of the witnesses. And, and the witnesses, they would talk about whatever it was, their perspective to try and persuade the grand jury to allow that trial to go to, to, or allow that case to go to trial. That's how that works. But the witnesses, they would come in and sometimes they'd be, they would be really proud and sometimes they would be really afraid. Sometimes they would cry and sometimes they would just be really mad. But the thing that was the common thread throughout all these witnesses, they all had to use words. They all had to speak They all had to say something. And if we are followers of Jesus, in a similar way, we're going to have to speak the faith that we believe. We're going to have to speak the message that we believe. After all, this isn't something that that is legalistic. This is something that should just fire us up. We should be excited to be able to know that we're on team Jesus. We should be excited to know that God has saved us, the wretched sinners that we were. And he saved us by his, by his grace, amen? Through our faith that he allowed us to have. And faith sometimes, and we know this, faith, even for, for a, a solid born-again Christian, sometimes faith kind of, it has highs and lows. The city of Jerusalem, they're in the middle of a low. They're in the middle of a, of a time of, of complacency. Because Zerubbabel had gone through with the first exile group. Ezra had gone through with the second exile group. And now Nehemiah is finding the city. And there should have been this incredible wave of God that happened. But it didn't. At least not up to that point. You know, there's a, there's a connection with something that I've seen. And I think that you'll probably agree with this too. When spiritual complacency increases, spiritual conviction decreases. When spiritual complacency increases, that's what's happening in the city of Jerusalem. Spiritual conviction decreases. And you know, in moments like this, I think that that God gives us an opportunity and maybe throws up a mirror in front of us to kind of show us in the moment, where are we? Who are we? What is God saying to me? What does God require of me? Because one thing I'm for sure of, God is not through with you. If you're here and you're listening, you've got life, God's not through with you. So it started with Nehemiah's courage to stand. The second thing we saw from the passage is he had conviction to speak. And the third and the final thing from this passage that that I will talk about is there was a commitment to action. There was a commitment to action. It wasn't just words. It wasn't just theoretical. 
There was a commitment to action. There was three individuals that are mentioned in this passage, and they're actually mentioned throughout Nehemiah. They're kind of the naysayers. Who in here has ever had a naysayer in their life? Anyone? If they're sitting next to you, just raise it up a little bit, and don't look at them. Don't look at them. You know who the worst offenders of this are? The worst offenders is if you decide that you're going to go on a diet and you tell somebody you're going to go on a diet, they're the worst offenders of this, right? Because while some people are, are they think it's awesome. They're encouraging you like, you've got this, you can do it. Like, and they're all, you, you love those people. You want those people close to you and that everything's great. You have a big lifestyle change. This, you want that person. But you always have other people like Sanballat, San, San Tobiah, and Geshem. You always have those people too. And they're the type of people that as soon as you say, yeah, I'm going to go on a diet. And the first thing they say is, good luck. I'm like, what? Thank you for that. That's encouraging. Or they say something like, well, I hope it works out better than the last one. That's reassuring. Or they just absolutely sabotage you all together, and they just ask you the question, well, why do you even want to lose weight? And you know who is notorious for this? And my grandmother's here today, so I'm, I'm saying this with my grandma in the room. Grandmas are notorious for this. Because if you go to grandma's house, it doesn't matter how fit you are, that she wants you to eat something right? It doesn't matter if you just pounded a thin crust at Angelo's before you went to grandma's house. If grandma says you want something to eat, you do what? You eat. Thank you. Thank you. It's true, grandma. I love you. It's true. She's here. She really is. You can meet her after the service. You eat. You see, Nehemiah, it wasn't all easy for him. He had a Senballat. He had a Tobiah. And he had a Geshem. And they were the people who every time that he went out to do this this great work, although he knew that God had empowered him to do this work, every time he decided to lean in to do that great work, there were these three naysayers just kind of like biting at his heels, nipping at his heels, trying to get him persuaded off of the task at hand. If you, if you are led of God to, to do something for God and you pray and you soak that in prayer and God is empowering you to do something, that doesn't mean that you're not going to have obstacles. More than likely, you are going to have obstacles. And what I've found, and I don't say this from a prideful sense, but I've found if you make a decision to do something great for God, you're going to have people who don't follow God who oppose you. And that's okay. That's Okay. Because you decided that you were going to go after God. And they, they have their own challenges in front of them. It says in this, pal- in this passage that they were mocked, that he was mocked and ridiculed. And in, at the end of verse 19, it says, what is this you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? So now they're trying to stir up even more controversy. Bring about things that aren't true. I'll fly through some, some things that I've seen in this passage that I think will help us if we're going to move forward by the grace of God. And I think if, as a church, if, if you're going to move forward and you're going to see another 75, another 150, another 200, however many years that, that God would have this church and this body and this group and this legacy lived out until he returns. I think in this passage there's some things here that would help us so we don't get discouraged, and also that we can understand that we all have a part to play in this work. The first part of this is, notice that there's a pattern to his work. Everything was organized. It was organized and directed. It wasn't sporadic. I know that this church is well organized. 
If you were to decide at the end of this message, and I hope some of you do decide at the end of this message, that you're going to step up. Maybe you're not in a serving area, and you step up, and you're going to serve. I want you to know that this church is organized. It's not 100%, because no church is ever 100%, but it's organized. And you're going to get into a group where ministry is already happening, but they want to welcome you into that group because they want to see you flourish, and they want to see God glorified by your service. And this also, and I kind of hinted at this a minute ago, when Nehemiah was mentioning the work that would be done by the people, no one can do everything, but every person can do something. No one can do everything, but every person can do something. What's your something? What's your something? The second thing we see, and I don't have time to go through it, but it's all in chapter 3 and chapter 4. I would love to dig into very deeply into the people who did the work because not only did, did Nehemiah say that they were going to be doing the work, we also can see one chapter later that there's a whole different group of people, groups of people doing the work. We see priests doing the work. We see leaders doing the work. By work, I mean literally constructing the wall. Priests constructing the wall. Women constructing the wall. Craftsmen constructing wall. Even Jews from other cities got excited about the work in Jerusalem and they were excited about the work of, of, of the city, of what's going on in the walls and gates and doors around Jerusalem and they left their, their homes to come just take part of the work because they get excited about what God was doing. It was the people who did the work. There were people who even did extra work. A lot of the work happened around their homes. And I still believe that this, this has a ring of truth to it. Christian service always begins at home, but it doesn't end there. Christian service always begins at home, but it doesn't end there. It's not okay to just say, well, I just serve my family. I serve my wife. I serve my kids. I serve, my, I, I serve this family member. If we're the body of Christ... That means that you have a part to play, that all of us are supposed to be working together. The Christian service always begins at home, and it did for them. The work around the wall, they, they did the work immediately around their home, but many people saw that there were other gaps in the wall around Jerusalem. So they, they stopped doing, the, or excuse me, once the, the work around their home was complete, they didn't just sit back and wait for everybody else to finish their part. They got busy helping other people do their part. And I, I want to give you a testimony about this church from 20 years ago. Many people don't know this. When Marla and I came to this church, our marriage was in trouble. It was, it was in a lot of trouble. It may look good on the outside. We didn't know how to play the part, talk the part. We, we got really good at that. But I want you to know that our marriage, because of of the faithfulness in the, in the saints serving Christ here at this church. Some people that I still talk to, now decades later, because of, of some of the investment of those people, because they stepped up to serve God, they, they were available in serving and then also gave us the ability to have our marriage completely reconciled and stronger than what it was. Allowed us then to have a place to serve of our own, and we love to serve in kids' ministry. We loved to serve in kids' ministry. And it was amazing. I remember I had a, 
<laughs> my after, excuse me, it was before I actually got a chance to communicate in here. I, I would preach to the kids and uh, and just whatever they would give me an opportunity to do. But I remember that there was this one event. Some of you in the room will actually remember this too. There was this one event that they had asked me to preach on a night of an all-nighter with kids. And we were over in the, the students and what is now the student center, the kids building. We brought the kids in there for the all-nighter. And we had a service, and it was loud, and it was great. We had games and did, did all the stuff, you, crazy stuff you do in kids' ministry. But I remember that was the very first time that when I preached that I really sensed the Spirit of God in me. And I preached, and, and I, I mean, I was shaking. I'm, I'm not going to lie. They were, they were kids, but, I mean, kids are, you know, ruthless. They really are. They, did, they don't even, I'm, I'm not going to lie. They just, whatever they're thinking, they, they're saying. And, and I'm like, and I, I was, you know, so I was kind of shaking, and I got done with my message, and it was one of those things. I was like, I guess it's all right. But I prayed. And what happened on that day changed my life forever. I believe what happened on that day is one of, the, one of the things that led me to being on the stage today. Because during that all-nighter, I, I got done speaking and I prayed. And after I got done praying, I looked up, wondering who'd be awake. <laughs> and the whole group was praying. There were kids weeping. Kids gave their lives to Jesus that night. It was an amazing movement of God. And I thought to myself after that, if I can be a part of that, I don't want to do anything else. If I can be a part of that, I don't want to, be a, I don't want to, I don't want to do anything else. You see, when you, you say yes to God, you're saying yes to a lot of other amazing things. And it's because of this this service and people doing, people investing in Marla and I and our marriage being reconciled and thus getting in a Sunday school class that we had at the time and us being discipled and us stepping up to serve in a kid's ministry that was structured and that was organized and gave us a place to serve and we poured our heart into that kid's ministry that, that eventually led us to, to, for me rather, to be a deacon and then to be called out of that position into full-time ministry. And what a ride it's been on. And had, had I known where all this was going to take us, I would have signed up all over again. Because amazing things happen when you say yes to God. I want to wrap up with this passage in Nehemiah 6, verse 15 and 16. The passage says this. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in fifty two days. When all our enemies heard about this and all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of God. Wow. No more naysayers. 52 days. Everybody doing their part. Everybody doing more than their part whether it was a religious leader or a, just a, a civic leader. They did ministry in families. There's another passage that tells us that. But when everybody got together, the work was complete in 52 days. See, a church with a 75-year history 
has truly been part of a movement of God. With Nehemiah, that's a movement of God. That isn't just about, that isn't just about bricks building a wall and gates and doors. That's a movement of God and the favor of God from beginning to end. You know, after the walls were built and after the doors and gates were hung a little while later, there was an eight-day revival that broke out. No longer were the people spiritually complacent. No longer were they spiritually complacent. They were spiritually alive, fully expecting that God would do something. I'm not your pastor, but I have a pastor's heart. And I want you to know that God wants to do something in your life. God is not through with you. Doesn't matter of the, the, the story, that what hap- has happened in your backstory. Doesn't matter of the, the color of the hair on your head. Doesn't matter of, of trauma that's happened to you or that you've done to yourself. God is not done with you. He's not. And I believe that if there's something that we should do to take home this message is that we should find our own courage to stand. Stand in the gap here at the church. Stand in the gap in our community. Stand in the gap at home. We should also have conviction to speak. If there's something that's, that's not being done, we should have conviction to speak. Instead of waiting for somebody else to do something, we should be the ones who not only say something, but also do something. And lastly... We need to have a commitment to action. We need to have a commitment to action, which is what we see in this passage. So where are you going to put your brick? Where are you going to put your brick? What is God calling you to do? What's he calling you to do? If I could offer just a little bit of counsel before I pray, I would say this. In times of transition in churches like this, sometimes churches stop and they wait for the next leader to come in and then they lose momentum. And if I could give you this advice, unsolicited as it is, if I could give you this advice, I would say, don't wait for God to bring another pastor. Get involved today. Let's pray together. Father, we, we so love you. Those of us who are in Christ, we are Jesus people. We're gospel people. We've gone from spiritual death to spiritual life. Spirit of God, help us to be people of, of conviction so that we can speak the truth, not our truth. Our truth is rubbish. Your truth is everlasting. Father, I pray for the man or woman, boy or girl, the teenager who's, who's listening right now, and maybe they just need that courage. Maybe they need to, to lean into the, the courage that you gave Joshua when he was up against an incredible task. But God, I know that the one thing we absolutely need is a commitment to action. Lord, direct our steps. Direct our words. Lead us by your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.